Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. Tonight we're joined by Dan Salmon. Good evening. Ro Murray. Good evening. And I'm Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for being with us. It is our second show back for the year and we've got an epic one for you. Tonight, what is the current state of our digital rights? We will speak with two contributors to Digital Rights Watch's annual report in the first half of the show. Then stick around, because Nicola Nye is popping in again after, by all reports, a highly engaged Linux conf to report back on a particularly novel part of their event, the badges. They're not usually the most exciting part of a conference, but they have changed the game up. Um, Andy Gelmi will also be joining her. But first, the news. Dan, the happiest news of all. Oh, isn't it, isn't it awesome? Um, our five-day sacrifice uh, lockdown circuit breaker. It's not strictly tech news, but it is important. Um, it is ending tonight. We are, we are free to an extent as of 11.59pm. Um, so uh, you won't be able to have more than five visitors in your home in a day and there won't be gatherings outside for more than 20 people. You will need to wear masks in any context where you can't... Um, I suppose, uh, social distance, but we're, we're, we'll be able to leave the house, go more than five kilometres. Uh, it's, it's, it's nice. Uh, look, uh, it's a testament really to uh, everyone's efforts in keeping, keeping things under control and not kind of, I uh, suppose, flipping out in the five days that we had. I know that I was a bit worried it was going to be extended, but um, no, uh, well, well done to everyone. Love it. Thank yeah. you, Dan. Exciting times. Um, as well, there's been one cyber criminal who was allegedly behind about half of Australia's phishing scams in 2019, um, and an Australian federal police investigation has helped to arrest them. So millions of dollars were stolen from Australian bank accounts that year, and investigations have eventually resulted in the arrest this week of a 31-year-old man from the Ukraine, and it really does go to show one person responsible for 50% of all of the attacks in Australia. Um, it is incredible. And Ro, responsible for me receiving increasingly unbelievable fake attacks from my uh, from my <laughs> employer as they try and educate us about the risks of phishing. <laughs> I'm getting really <laughs> good at picking fun. them. They're I'm getting fun. really good at picking those ones. It's just like you know what? Yeah. That's and then you get a little like congratulations, you got it right. I'm like yes, yes, I did. It's about the <laughs> they're gamifying it, which is nice. Oh, gosh, yeah. About a year ago, uh, a workplace that I was freelancing at, they their IT department decided to go on a bit of an internal phishing scheme as well, and they were just like, oh, guys, we're horrified. You all suck at this. You need to do better. So we all got dragged into Don't Be an Idiot training and uh, <laughs> all had to start using two-factor authentication and getting a bit more common sense about clicking on links in emails. Very Good. good. <laughs> It's probably well overdue in some instances, let's be honest. <laughs> exactly. Oh, and speaking of being well overdue, so um, obviously with everything pandemic that's been happening, all of our big events have been going online. And in some respects, that has been awesome, particularly in terms of accessibility, both um, for people who might not physically be able to drag themselves around, but global accessibility, the ability to go, I can stay in Melbourne, but I'm going to dial into that thing in Scotland. This is going to be awesome. However, um, this has highlighted how um, 
we, we've, we've grabbed it and run with it and we've been running events um, sometimes with not a lot of thought as to how they're going to feel and sound. So someone got busy and uh, today a new platform was announced called Skittish and you can find out more about that at skittish.com and it's just spelt like the word, you know, skittish. Um, and it's basically being described as animal crossing for conferences and events. It's a virtual space for online events and it brings people together. It looks very cute um, and it's kind of like a game-like interactive 3D environment that's basically designed from the ground up to bring that social aspect back into it. So it's got proximity chat, social games, experimental events. It's still in private beta, but you can watch the videos and check it out and put your name on the list. Ro, is this the natural evolution from things like uh, different Google spaces and uh, virtual spaces like Miro and Mural having us assigned all little anonymous animals when we go into things. You know, now now we can be little Animal Crossing type characters. Yes, which I completely love. Um, and I did did hear around the traps about a few uh, teams that were going into Red Dead Redemption to have their team meetings around, <laughs> a, you know, around a fire in the middle of the desert with a wolf howling in the background. That's very amazing. Just to, keep the entertainment level back up again. And uh, I think it looks like um, I'm very curious to see it in the real world. Real world? Gosh, Rowena, no. Um, <laughs> but I'm really curious to see it come to life and do its thing. So one Maybe we should have a, a bite edition where we're all in skittish and, and our listeners can join us. That could be entertaining. Yes, and we could stream it on Twitch. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, we do have a very important interview coming up with a couple of people about the Digital Rights Watch annual report just after a quick break. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. We are very thrilled to have a couple of people with us virtually this evening. Samantha Floriani is a privacy and technology specialist. Justin Warren is an Electronic Frontiers Australia board member, has lots of specialties in privacy as well, and is particularly famous for being an adept freedom of information requester. They have heaps in common. However, tonight we invited them to join us to discuss one particular thing, the 2020 State of the Digital Rights Report, a report commissioned by the Digital Rights Watch um, not-for-profit. Uh, full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of Digital Rights Watch and um, I still think this is an incredibly public interest interview, but please take that in mind when I'm very partisan to the comments of our two guests this evening. Welcome, Samantha. Welcome, Justin. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Great to have you. So um, I guess there's no avoiding the great big hairy elephant in the room and sort of set the scene with what happened in 2020. Obviously, our massive pandemic shot a huge spotlight on both our reliance on tech um, as well as the privacy implications of what tech can do. Um, it's kind of like COVID has turned philosophy into reality. Um, plus things like the COVID Safe app obviously eroded a lot of trust. Um, from an activism perspective, um, what did 2020 change in light of this report? Well, it made it a lot more difficult to, weirdly enough, to actually build community with people. Um, humans like to socialise and doing that online, as I'm sure we've all experienced over the past year, just isn't the same. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it also really highlighted that when it comes to organising communities and also with activism, that we really do need some ways to do that securely. So it really highlighted how digital security is really important because if we have to do these things online, then we need that extra level of assurance. Samantha, over the last couple of years, we've really seen a lot of movement 
in um, workers for technology companies sort of taking their rights in hand and starting to agitate. Um, there's enough of them around to be meaningful now. But we haven't seen the same sort of progress from um, the technology companies and particularly owners of digital platforms themselves. What was it, do you think, that we particularly needed as, as members of the public from digital platforms um, to improve over the last year? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I, I did write a piece for the report and my piece was all about, all about this, all about our relationship with digital platforms and sort of the power dynamics that, that happen between us as individuals and as communities and then as, as sort of the, um, yeah, these, these platforms that we live and work and um, play on, really. And I think 2020, again, highlighted just how much we rely on having these platforms to be able to continue to live a somewhat, you know, normal life, in, in air quotes, normal. <laughs> um, so I think 2020 really emphasised for a lot of people just how much we needed and continue to need digital platforms to step up and to really take things like privacy um, and security seriously. And in many ways, they really failed in 2020. And that's a bit of a that's a bit of a bleak outlook. But essentially, my piece goes into um, the the myriad ways that they did let us down. And one of the things that I think stands out is that while yes, we do rely on digital platforms, they also rely on us. They rely on us as contributors to, to the platforms. We create the content, you know, musicians create the music on Spotify, artists populate uh, Instagram, all of these things. And so one of the things that I think came out really strongly while we were all kind of enjoying culture and the arts online was that platforms benefit from creators that they don't really support them. Justin, that makes me think of a point that you raise, which is that private companies are collecting data from us all the time mm. and that um, sometimes it can be in a government's interest for that to be happening as well. Could you elaborate a bit on, you know, your points in, the, in that area? Yeah, well, as much as Facebook is actively trying to turn itself into some kind of world government, um, governments are actively trying to turn themselves into Facebook and trying to track us with everything that we do in ways that they aren't able to do in the, in the physical world. And in fact, in ways that in the physical world, we would immediately notice them doing it and find it incredibly invasive and creepy. And yet for some reason, um, governments often point to us and say, well, you, you're on Facebook or you use Twitter or you use these other, other things and you're sharing some of your information, you don't have privacy there we should therefore be able to install a camera in your bedroom and inside your colon and watch everything that you do. And that is to fundamentally misunderstand what privacy is about and what our digital rights are about. It's it's also a little bit self-serving, quite frankly. And it it's a weird situation where the government is highlighting its own failure as a justification for what it's doing. So the fact that we have these digital platforms and we're asking for them to, you know, should they do more? Well, they, surely they should, yes. But they have so far manifestly failed to do so. And that's where governments should step in. Uh, we, this is where governments have always historically needed to step in when private organisations fail to do things in a safe manner or to do things in a way that actually benefits society, um, we get governments to step in. And that hasn't happened here. It's starting to happen a little bit now, but it's very reactive. And really, everyone could see this coming. Um, 
EFA has been around for 25 years, and we were talking about this back in the early, you know, late 90s and early 2000s. So to suddenly turn around and, and act all surprised is a well, it's it's disingenuous, really. Absolutely. So what would you have in mind when you talk about federally enforceable privacy rights? Where would we begin? So uh, th this has already been discussed a bunch of times. So one thing would be a, a tort of serious breach of privacy, which is essentially a private action. Right at the moment, if someone violates your privacy um, under the Privacy Act, which has a very, fairly limited jurisdiction, it only deals with very large organisations, it doesn't deal with the corner shop or a small business that might be running a QR code for you at the moment, um, and it also exempts political parties, which is a bit of fun. Um, a private right of action would mean that rather than just um, complaining to a government regulator, which is um, the Office of the Australian Information Commissioner, which has been chronically underfunded, uh, I would say deliberately so, um, they are not able to enforce our rights on our behalf. They also tend to go for very large or like a very big one or a case that affects many, many people because they have, even with a lot more funding, they would have limited resources. If you don't meet that bar, if you don't manage to hurdle over it, you basically get nothing. A private right of action would help people who otherwise fall through those cracks. So that's something that was recommended by the Australian Law Reform Commission back in 2014, um, and it has been consistently called for for going on seven years now. So that's a very clear and obvious thing that's already been canvassed. There's demo legislation ready to go. This is something that could be turned around and done very, very quickly. We should be asking, why hasn't it? I think um, it was really funny in our... So Digital Rats Watch had a launch for this report uh, last week, two weeks ago. Yeah. What is time? I'm not sure. Um, and <laughs> Justin, you said, I remember because it stuck out to me, you said um, that the Privacy Act was better than nothing. And I think that that is such a funny and accurate way of looking at it. But, I mean... As people may know, we are in the process of hopefully reforming, um, meaningfully reforming the Privacy Act. So fingers crossed it will be a bit better than better than nothing. I think there's a lot of pressure to do that because better privacy legislation has since been passed overseas. So in the EU, GDPR, though it's not perfect, it has its flaws, that was really carefully considered and developed over a long period of time. And it does actually have some teeth. Now, how well that's actually being enforced, that comes down to individual governments, which is the problem we always have. Whatever the law says doesn't really matter if the law is never enforced. So we do actually need governments to enforce the laws that they write and to do so consistently for everybody. But having, having those laws in place and modelling them on what is working very well in other jurisdictions and taking some caution about, oh, okay, that's not actually panning out the way we thought it would, learning from the mistakes that others make and then improving on that means that Australia could actually end up with better privacy legislation than what the EU has. And I think that's something that we would all really, really enjoy. Well, that talk of legislation does make me think of um, another piece of proposed legislation that's in discussion at the moment. Samantha, you wrote about the news media bargaining code. Um, 
and how that came out of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission's uh, July 2019 final report following their inquiry into digital platforms, which had been running for a couple of years. So this is quite a long piece that we've seen come out. What was disappointing about that being the first action to be taken coming off that report for you? Mm, yeah, I mean... There's a bit to be disappointed about. This is kind of a controversial topic, even within the digital rights uh, space. Like, you know, we we at Digital Rights Watch have made it pretty clear that we're um, not in favour of this approach. We think that, in general, it essentially we would rather see, you know, some real meaningful grappling with these models, these business models of of these big tech companies, Facebook and Google, rather than just trying to carve out extra profits for major uh, media corporations, essentially. We're concerned that it means that it will leave out um, independent and small uh, journalists and creators and whatnot, because this idea of them being able to step up to the plate and bargain with these big tech giants is laughable, really. And we just think that there are better ways to go about this. You know, taxing these big tech corporations would be one other option that we could be looking at. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, a few issues with, with the code as it is currently uh, proposed. But, with, but that being said, you know, some within the digital rights circles in Australia are really in favour of it. So it's, it's a tricky space. I think something that's so interesting about the last year that would have been present to people who aren't obsessed with the privacy and digital rights space, but they, they would have been very conscious of Trump's active social media presence. And um, I wonder, you know, have you had a chance to reflect on what has happened since he's left office and his Twitter account's been cancelled and his Facebook account's been cancelled and they've removed a lot of fake accounts? You know, what sort of things does this make you think about in terms of the conversation going on around the right to anonymity and profiles and the importance of um, being able to identify people and tie them to these sort of social media accounts? Was that for me? It, I guess, <laughs> yeah, I guess it's a few. Sorry, it's a very long-winded one. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, it makes me think of a few things. So first on, on the point you raised about uh, anonymity, which is a really hard word to say for someone who's a privacy professional and it comes up all the time. <laughs> uh so I think that being able to remain anonymous is is really important. And so when people throw around these ideas of like, well, we should we should tie all social media profiles or um, you know public profiles to to a real a real name, air quotes around a real name, because that has all kinds of uh, implications when it comes to the trans community, for example. Um, I think that anonymity is really important for not just the trans community, but also the LGBTQ plus community. Like, there are lots of reasons why people would want to remain anonymous online. And so I think we can't be too quick to um, react to something like Trump and want to just, you know, implement these policies without thinking through how this would harm marginalised and vulnerable groups. The other thing that it makes me think about is how complex and fraught this area of content moderation is. And I think that's another thing that came out really strongly in 2020. Obviously, it's been an issue for a very long time, but really, really highlighted in 2020 um, because everyone was online all the time and we were just seeing it all the time and there was all of this misinformation flowing. And another issue with uh, digital platforms, social media in particular, is that they profit off engagement and what's more what's the most engaging content it is the provocative stuff it is the highly inflammatory stuff it's the it's 
hate speech or, or um, you know, conspiracy theories and stuff like that. So I, I think that's another area where people are really starting to pay a bit more attention and question the role that these platforms should play and how how much of a role that should be. And I think for me personally, and I'm sure it's the same, the same for a lot of people, really grappling with this, you know, being torn between wanting these platforms to do more but also being very, very uncomfortable with them being, you know, the, the arbiters of, air quotes, truth on the internet. Yeah. Oh, sorry, Ray. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, because, I mean, obviously they clearly don't have a particularly good track record so far. And um, with particularly, you know, the major platforms uh, like your Twitters, you can report individual tweets and you can report individual users for certain specific things. Uh, Facebook in particular, you can report posts um, and report profiles and pages. And that's been weaponised in some instances where gangs of trolls have gone after genuine activist pages that are all about, you know, truth justice and transparency um, right through to the flip side where when you really do need that kind of moderation it just doesn't seem to be there and I'm really interested um, to hear from you guys if um, if there was a hear your views on if there's a there was a tighter better standard of that moderation would that be part of the solution obviously it's not a magic bullet it's a it's a tricky one and mm. for me it's largely about power who has it and who does it get used against? So I think what we've noticed here is that a, there is a large amount of power that can either be used or, or not used, and not using power is a choice. And the, a lot of that power has been has accumulated in very, very few hands. So we had you know, Twitter, Facebook. The ultimate decision-making power there is, is very, very few people. Mm. That's inherently undemocratic. Um, here in Australia, we like to think of ourselves as a liberal democracy um, where we come together as a group and we make group decisions. We don't just appoint one king and say that, well, you're the king of Facebook, you get to decide who can speak and who can't and in what circumstance. This is something that I think we're wrestling with as a society. Um, I don't think we're doing a very good job of it, though, because we're not having that conversation, um, talking about who has the power to decide who can speak to whom and in what in what context. We are, in my, my view, moving a little scarily towards an authoritarian approach um, and uh, allowing very few people to be given full discretion to make the decision with very little oversight. And it's not a group decision. Um, that's not new to Australia. We have the Australian Classification Board, which is famously not an elected body. Um, we have the now Online Safety Act, which is being proposed, which is going to accumulate a large, even more power with the eSafety Commissioner. These are a politically appointed roles. They are not subject to a, a kind of democratic oversight or even judicial oversight in many cases. And I think that we really need to review whether or not that's what we want to do. Mm. And one option for how do we do how do we do moderation better? Well, there's lots of talk about magical technology that will somehow be able to make these decisions even better than humans can. Moderation, we've we've seen this doing it ourselves for thousands of years. It's a really hard thing for us to figure out. We have enough trouble writing software without bugs in it. I don't think AI is going to be the solution to that problem. So we need to tackle it as humans. 
And what we've seen from these platforms is at the scale that they exist, it is not a problem that can be solved at that scale. And I think that they need to be made smaller. We need to break them up. Well, this is exactly the sort of nuanced discussion that doesn't get a million clicks on Twitter, but it does get a love heart from me because I think it's um, it's incredibly valuable and I hope our listeners um, appreciate how lucky we are to have you speaking with us this evening. We have been speaking with Samantha Floriani and Justin Warren. You can read in detail their submissions as part of the Digital Rights Watch annual report, the State of Digital Rights 2020. Um, head to digitalrightswatch.org.au to check that out. If you want more from Justin or to um, also help get involved in things, you can also visit the efa.org.au, Electronic Frontiers Australia. And um, we thank you very much for your time this evening, both of you. Great. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Couple of very welcome participants have joined our virtual call. We have Nicola Nye. You will know her as Chief of Staff of Fastmail. And we've got Andy Jelmy, hacker at large. They are both Linux enthusiasts and they helped bring an exciting facet of the Linux conference to life this year, the swag badge. To tell us all about it, Nick and Andy, welcome. Hello, people. Good evening. Well, thanks, Marissa. So good to have you with us again. Um, so, what even is a swag badge? It's a conference badge, <laughs> but electronic. So you know is when you go a little lanyard. <laughs> it does come with a lanyard, and it's even got lights, flashy lights. Oh, There's a whole that. story involved with the flashy light lanyard. I won't go into it right now. But you know when you go to a conference and you have a paper badge that tells people who you are and maybe where you come from and maybe it contains your uh, conference program in there so you can make it to the next session. Well, the swag badge is an electronic kind of badge. Uh, it's, it's basically a tiny computer that you can hang around your neck. It's got screens on it, it's got a circuit board, and it's got a tiny processor and, you know, some buttons and switches and unfortunately not enough lights because you can never have too many lights. Totally agree. I got very excited when I realised you guys were coming on the show to talk about this. Um, that you know what I was reading up on it on Twitter looked incredible. So why go electronic? I really want to hear you know, especially about the flashing lights. So, <laughs> well, uh, for the first time in the, the Lions Conference history, it looked like they were going to uh, postpone this year, which was sad because it was you know, shaping up to be a great one. But uh, but the uh, organising committee uh, stepped in the last moment and decided to just go online. And they did a fantastic job organising it. And they also wanted to do something special in terms of this, this, the swag. And so I thought, well, it's an online conference, so I want to try to connect people with these badges and, uh, and as, as I have as a learning platform. So that's kind of how it came about. I think that's brilliant. So what could people do with their badge once they had it, especially considering they're all distributed in their different homes around the world? We saw so many things. I mean, uh, Andy was busy creating kind of an operating system for the badge that would let people interact with it uh, easily. Um, so I wrote some applications that went over the top of it. So we had a scheduling app that let, you know, it flashed up some notices on your badge every time the sessions were due to change. So you could be reminded that, hey, you know, you really wanted to grab that talk by so-and-so from Digital Rights Watch, so you should, you know, go and, and swap your stream right now. Um, but we also saw some really creative things. Someone hooked up a uh, little buzzer strapped it to their wrist and every time you sent their badge a message 
it would give him like an electronic handshake. Uh, and you could even <sighs> control how much of a handshake you were giving him. Was it a firm one and therefore it buzzed a lot or, you know, really gentle one? Someone even set up their badge on the, on the screen to uh, um, stream the video feed from the conference. Wow. Very slowly. It was like 0.1 frame a second. So <laughs> not very useful, but it could be done. And that was kind of cool. And then there was someone Watch else. Watch Netflix. That's <laughs> right. going to take us over. Um, someone else had their lanyard hooked up to their badge. Uh, they'd, they'd custom built a lanyard. And every time you sent them a hug on Twitter, it would light up the lanyard. And, in fact, it would keep, keep track of how many hugs they'd received on Twitter. And it would send them a message back. But the more hugs he received, the brighter and more colourful his lanyard got. Amazing. So cool. That's so, brilliant. Uh, in addition to us trying to produce this hardware and ship it as a team, the goal was to try and engage the uh, attendees to also to play and be creative. And so, to some extent, that, that, that worked. So what hardware was actually involved in the swag badge? Are we talking Raspberry Pi? Because that's the first thing I think of. Um, I'll, I'll grab the hardware question and we'll leave the hard, the hard one technical questions for Nicola. <laughs> um, no, it's panic. No. Um, it's, it's using a very popular microcontroller called the ESP32. There's a, a little-known Chinese company that um, a few years ago made a, a tiny microcontroller for a couple of dollars. And what was amazing about it was... Um, it was. It had networking, so basically two bucks. Um, uh, you can program it in um, in C or um, other language like like, like JavaScript, work, and it was online. And then based on that success, they opened up the community, and for five dollars you get some uh, little net microcontroller, some dual 32-bit microprocessors. It's got touch sensors, um, lots of memory. You can run MicroPython on it, which is a, a Melbourne um, de uh, development. It's great. So yeah, it's a bit, and then we basically create a circuit board around that, so to give it um, a couple of OLED screens with buttons behind it, which is a bit of an experiment, um, some touch sliders, and something we'll talk about probably a bit later, or actually, I'll let Nicola from this one, is the, the SAOs, these um, simple add-on connectors. And all yours, Nicola. Uh, I mean, I guess um, for maybe some of the audience that are not so technically inclined, a microprocessor is is the brains of a computer, and you've got one in, in, sitting in front of your laptop right now, um, and it's what controls how how powerful your computer is, how fast it can think. Uh, and Andy and I were looking at a very old photo of me from uh, <clears throat> a few decades ago, and we actually discovered that the computer I had at the time, four thousand dollars, state of the art, fantastic Sun Spark station. In some respects, the uh, computing power in the swag badge was more considerable than that computer from twenty something years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty astonishing. Um, so the add-ons are really cool because uh, part of the goal for the swag badge is to let people who are not familiar with electronics, not familiar with the hardware angle of things, who maybe have some familiarity with software, to kind of get involved in a in a low barrier way. And that's part of why you know this badge was sent out to all of the Australian participants who wanted one. So, we, you know, we, we did like 300 badges and shipped them around the country. Like this is the size of a small Kickstarter. So you can add, have these add-ons and it uses a very basic standard that all electronic conference badges now try to support. So if you go to another conference that also has an electronic badge, you can use add-ons that you maybe have purchased on the internet or got at this conference and you can use them on our badge. But we also gave people the basis to help them build their own so they could experiment safely with electronics and give them the support to do so um, within the wider community so that they could 
they could use their software knowledge for um, evil. I mean, for electronics as well. <laughs> well, you mentioned evil, and that's exactly where my mind was going. You know, DEFCON famously, uh, people don't bring in any technology to that conference unless they are willing for it to be hacked because it is going to be hacked. Um, are they the sort of conference that has uh, technical badges? Do you know? Where did you get your inspiration from? Was it other conferences? Yeah, the, def, the, the uh, inspiration was definitely the uh, historic DEFCON badges, which have been going on for quite a little while now. Um, but also um, there's other, other conferences things called the Shark Conference in, in, in Europe. We've been wanting to do our own conference badge for, for many years now, um, and uh, this, is, this is the chance. Uh, when it comes to um, the hacking, uh, this is this is a really interesting uh, question because we were basically shipping hardware to 300 people around Australia, which is going to be put onto their Wi-Fi network, and so you know, pranks could uh, abound from there. But uh, it's all based around two things: trust and open source. Um, all our designs, the hardware and software, um, right down to you know, the MicroPython code itself, which is you know, developed by Damien George and his, his team. Um, that's all available on, uh, online on, on GitHub. So people could um, uh, you know, not trust us. They could basically go to the source themselves, rebuild it if they wanted to, and uh, and do their own thing, which you should do if you're basically inviting devices into your home. That's really, really cool. I've, I was actually really thrilled to hear you expand on what that, um, you know, the, the purpose of them beyond making them a bit fun and bright and awesome and a bit more interactive. So um, that's really cool. But I'm also wondering, from a conference organiser standpoint, were there any really cool insights that came out of it um, sort of beyond, you know, people doing some cute things with it. What was learned? We, uh, the open hardware team were the group that sort of put this together. Uh, and the team variously led by John Otzer and Andy Jelmy here um, have been doing this for over a decade. And they were the people approached to put together this badge. Um, and normally for the open hardware mini conference, it just runs for a day. So we have three or four months of prep. Um, and then we hand out the hardware kits on the day to a lucky 30 participants, which usually is about the most that we can manage, um, with a heap of helpers in the room to help people learn how to solder without burning themselves and, and learn all these kind of basics. So the interesting thing for this was that we had a community of 200 people. I think, you know, by the weekend we, we'd managed to ship out a sort of bit over 200. Um, and it was interesting, you know, watching how many people were switching their badges on, what were they doing with them. Um, and because it was online, it meant that people from around the world could join in. It meant that we were available to answer questions across the course of the weekend that the conference was on, whereas normally, like, we only get that one day. Um, so it was really interesting to watch the momentum build as people kind of would learn get hold of it on the you know in the month before the conference and then we'd start talking to them and then we had our sessions on the day and then they had follow-up sessions and so we were available for tutorials afterwards so I felt you know in terms of engagement um, this was one of the most successful and we're hoping to continue to catalyze that and build on it the um the question around what was learned um uh, there's uh, our team that would uh, develop the project and the the uh, Linux uh, conference organizers um for us it was um the hard lessons of the past years were, were relearned. Um, you know, four months is not a lot of top time to uh, turn around a hardware design, get it made. The parts were made in China, foolishly assemble it all ourselves. Never again. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, a couple of the team members got blisters from clipping. Oh. I think it was around ten thousand solder leads. Um, yeah, they they suffered Oof. for their art. Um, uh, so yeah. Uh, so we, we alligator learned, um, clips aren't good enough for you, Andy. <laughs> Oh, I, love, I love alligator clips. So pro. Just so pro. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so um, basically, 
always make allowance for things going wrong, um, things costing extra. Um, the the uh, other displays, um, we had 10% failure rate, so all that sort of stuff. Uh, and as for the, uh, the Linux organizing team, I guess for some of them it was um, uh, working with a something they were um, committed uh, a reasonable budget to and had to be delivered on time for their conference during um, a COVID, um, uh, you know, during isolation, plus um, Australia Post sort of collapsing a bit, things taking a longer post, plus, yeah. doing, plus postings just before Christmas. So there's a lot of logistics. And then um, to keep the price down, we, we made sure it could be shipped in a $3 envelope. And then uh, the lanyards, um, they were added in and uh, they, they pushed us over the, the weight and size um, budget. Oh, so no. all of a sudden, um, this, this is where personal relationships come in. Uh, John, had a, John, because he ships around the world for his Treatronics company, uh, has a great relationship with uh, his local Australia Post um, owner. And they were able to work something out where um, rather than taking days or weeks to ship it all, um, you can just do it involved. Yeah, so yeah, lessons learned are, you know, logistics and planning is, is everything. And, and not um, ripping your hair out when uh, it gets hard. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, speaking of logistics, I, I want one, and I'm sure that they're very difficult to get. Can can a regular punter who hasn't uh, registered or didn't go to the uh, Linux Conf get hold of one of these guys? They're conference swag. So if you didn't go to the conference, you don't get the badge. Ah. But we know how super cool they are and part of you know the, the idea of it being open hardware open software is people can go out and do it for themselves so we've Woo-hoo! actually got instructions on our website for how you can build your own um and in true australian vernacular we've called it the dag badge oh, God. <laughs> no it's not as fancy as the proper swag one which has got you know beautiful lettering and, and a gorgeous design on the back of an actual swag man wearing a swag badge um because you know australian conference and all so we've got this dag badge and you can go to our website at openhardwareconf.org um, and there you can find instructions on how you can build your own where to get some parts uh, and you know connections to the community that's super exciting um for our listeners at home who aren't on our uh little radio broadcasting group call uh nicola's been an absolute legend and making it look like a rave in here with um the awesome lanyards with all of the fabulous flashing lights and things um got me very excited there so um Aside from um, going to your website, uh, downloading the details for the DAG badge and getting stuck in, what happens next? Is this going to be uh, next year's conference feature? Are you going to roll it out? What are your plans for world domination? We've always got plans for world domination, I tell you. Marvelous. <laughs> <laughs> so um, we've got all these people. They've got their badges. They were excited to have it during the conference. We hope that they're going to continue to use it. So we're planning on organising some online meetups so people who have the badges or want to get involved and build their own DAG badge can come along and, you know, make use of the services of our uh, experience. But we also know that, you know, while we are a team of five uh, on the shoulders of, of many hundreds that have also helped over the years, um, we really want to expand it out and we want to connect people with local communities. And this is where lots of hacker spaces or maker spaces can come in. Um, so the core hardware team um, are based in Melbourne at the hacker space in Melbourne, which is in Hawthorne. Yeah. Um, so obviously plenty of expertise there. There's a MicroPython crew who meet regularly as well as uh, members of the open hardware team. But there are maker spaces all around Australia and they are familiar with the kind of electronics that go into this and who can also help. But we've also got an online community where people who've got the swag badge or a DAG badge can reach out and support one another as well. So there's an online forum that you can get to from the website. Um, but like that's 
that's just the swag badge for this year. Uh, we're mm. hoping to be able to do some more for next year as well at the next LinuxCon. Super I exciting. love that. I'm thinking mesh networks. I'm thinking sensors that haven't been used before. This is brilliant. <laughs> yeah, so throughout the year, we'll continue to do firm, firmware upgrades and releases and engage with the community. And um, can we give you a couple of URLs? Um, Please. So the first, first one would be um, openhardwareminiconf.org. So openhardwareminiconf.org uh, yeah. so open is where all the details about um, how to get started, where you get the hardware design details from and, and uh, the firmware and how you can build your own. Uh, also, if you want to go to um, hackmelbourne.com, that's the, the Melbourne hackerspace. We, um, we'll, we'll, run, we'll run some workshops uh, throughout the year. Uh, the SP32 groups there is, um, have, and MicroPython as well. Uh, so, yeah, there's a couple of places you can go to help. We'll tweet out some links after this. I was just going to say, sorry, I nearly nice. spoke right over the top of you, Vanessa. We'll tweet that. <laughs> I love it. It's nice to have backup, Ro. Um, <laughs> hey, it's been brilliant. We've been chatting with Nicola Nye and Andy Jelmy, both about the swag badge at the Linux conference. Definitely worth getting along to one of those if you haven't been before. But if you're just a regular Joe like me, you can still get your hands on a DAG badge. We love the inclusivity. Thanks so much for joining us this evening, you two. Thanks for having us, Byte Team. Pleasure. Ab yeah, Absolute pleasure. It's great. Thank you. You're listening to Byte Into It with Ro, Vanessa, and my name is Dan. <laughs> We're still saying goodbye to Andy and Nick from the last, and Andy's brought his dog on. Oh, guys, Vanessa, we have a radio dog tonight. <laughs> yes, and it's a shame you guys can't see can't see it. But uh, Vanessa, how's it how's it going? Fluffy and delightful. Yes, yes. <laughs> the beauties of video hey, conferencing. We did want to talk about um, our weird news of the week was storm related. There have been crazy snowstorms hitting the states, and uh, Texas is in the news a fair bit because they're having all sorts of infrastructure and particularly power issues, so that lots of rolling power outages. Now, there's been plenty of news over the last few years about exodus from Silicon Valley and where those companies are going and where are they going? Well, a lot of them are going to Texas. Um, some of them aren't there yet. Some of these moves are just announced. So, um, Hewlett Packard has said that Houston is going to become their largest employment hub and they're building a new campus there right now. So they've already moved a lot of their staff there. And they're quite, you know, famously based in um in in Texas. So they were sort of one of the first companies to be there. But Oracle plans to move its headquarters from California to Austin. And Tesla is building a large factory in Austin. And there's all sorts of other venture capitalists and other technology companies we could name, but we won't, who are moving there. I thought it was funny that anti-clean energy pundits had jumped onto Twitter and um, said that the power outages were evidence that solar and wind power didn't work for the oil state. <laughs> However, we, we, you know, the barest, you know, glance of research, um, you could find that lots of the um, projected investment in those greener energies has not actually been realised in Texas yet. They're, they're sort of waiting to implement those. So exactly. the problems they're having are due to um, old tech and a privatised and deregulated electricity market. Scandalous. Absolutely, and it is kind of like a perfect storm. Um, you know, speaking of that, so, you know, yeah, absolutely right. People have been going, oh, you know, it's it's the wind farms. Well, it's it's not. Less than 10% of Texas's energy comes from green sources, and they're actually holding up. Um, one of the things, because Texas has gone ahead and, 
deregulated and privatised, they actually did an extraordinary thing and disconnected themselves from the rest of the federal network. So what normally happens in emergency situations is the other states come to the party, back that crap up and keep the lights on, keep the heat flowing, keep the water pumping and the gas rolling. And because they've got nah -uh, we this is the best the closest we can get to succeeding from the states or something <laughs> um they have literally uh people are literally dying over it and it is just an absolute travesty um and and also what we hate to see is people having to go to twitter to say elon musk please save us you're moving tesla here when are you going to fix the electricity uh, problems you're like that musk is not the solution people this it's sounds like south solution. australia all over again except i like the south australians <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Um, so obviously um, Austin has been doing, uh, Austin, the city of Austin in Texas in particular, has been doing a really incredible job of rebranding themselves and playing this long-term strategy of being an absolute tech hub, bringing more diversity, new talent pools, all of this really incredible stuff to the party. And, um, and that's been going on for a long time and it's finally paying off for them right up until this storm's hit and it's really exposed a number of flaws. But... Um, I did have to chuckle a little bit um, on Twitter today. The City of Austin official account, they've really copped it because um, due to technical limitations, they've only been able to make their absolute emergency life-saving announcements via Facebook Live, which Ooh, is too not bad, that so accessible. Sad. Not accessible, particularly when electricity has been out for 30 hours, no one's got electricity, people's charges have run flat. Um, so, yeah, so that was, um, oh, look, you know, it's punching down at this point, but it, re it really brings it home. <laughs> so so they, they've got a bit of a ways to go before they do become the tech hub that they really want to be. Is that is that kind of what, the message that we're getting out of this whole thing? Oh, oh, oh I think so. It's yeah. a bit awkward. A bit more south Look, our heart goes out to our um, fellow peeps in Texas. They do have a very vibrant community radio scene, so hopefully people have got their uh, very low-energy usage radios going and hoping to get some news through those paths. Um, that could be cool. Hey, Absolutely. in events tonight there are a few things going on despite the challenging environment so uh ro do you want to tell us about one of those events yeah absolutely so um you know obviously th this last 12 months has been super weird and as we you know talked about earlier in the show when we were talking about this new platform skittish um you know we've all had had to suddenly do events online um the, the question is, a year in, are they successful? And there's now enough data to look at it. So a recent Tech Target article did a deep, deep dive into the major tech conferences and basically found them really lacking from boredom to embarrassing tech fails. We can uh, tweet out a link to the full article, but um, it really does go to show you still have to put a show on, you still have to think about your audience and you still have to think about how they're consuming their information when you're putting these big events on. It's not enough to fire up Zoom or Skype. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Dan, one of one of the events, maybe. Yeah, sure. So um, now that we're allowed to go outside again, maybe you wanted to head down this Sunday to the Tan for the Girls in Tech Mentor Walk. Um, so seventy, it's a forty-five minute walk around the Tan in in the open air, getting a chance to speak with potential mentors. Uh, there's after, there's uh, follow ups afterwards if you prefer. Um, so from nine thirty a.m. this Sunday, the fourteenth of March, it is a twelve dollar fifty uh, ticket. Uh, you can register on Eventbrite and uh, and pay up there. But yeah, get out and enjoy the outdoors while we can. That's absolutely beautiful. Mm. Um, there's also Screen by Screen, which is running until Saturday, Feb 20th. 
Um, it is an online conference covering live streaming, gaming, AI, and VR. I wonder if AR is an answer to AI. Who knows? No, it was AI, definitely oh. AI and VR, yeah. AI and VR. Interesting. Yeah. I go. like them. Um, the website is screenxscreen.com. Uh, tickets are US $50 and sessions can be watched on demand. But it's such a good opportunity at the moment to access these sort of conferences that you don't mm. normally get to rock up to for very reasonable prices. Ad- absolutely. Uh, speaking of reasonable prices, and look, I'm always a bit dubious uh, promoting anything to do with Amazon, but Amazon Web Services is a behemoth and we would be remiss to not mention their Innovate Online Conference, which uh, is uh, an edition focusing on AI and machine learning. Uh, 24th big, big. Sorry, Vanessa. Oh, sorry, sorry. Big, big, no, no. I was going to say a big thank you to our guests this evening, Samantha Floriani, Justin Warren, Nicola Nye, Andy Jelmi, and thanks to my fellow co-hosts, Ro and Dan. Thanks to Talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it and we've been thrilled to be with you tonight. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or bite into its Twitter or Facebook accounts. 